Chapter Fourteen of the Literary Sense. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Capricia Page. The Literary Sense by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Fourteen The Duel. "'But I wasn't doing any harm,' she urged piteously. She looked like a child, just going to cry. "'He was holding your hand.' "'He wasn't. I was holding his. I was telling him his fortune. And anyhow, it's not your business.' She had remembered this late, and phrased it carelessly. "'It's my master's business,' said he. She repressed the retort that touched her lips. After all, there was something fine about this man who, in the first month of his ministrations as parish priest, could actually dare to call on her, the richest and most popular woman in the district, and accuse her of—well, most people could hardly have gone so far as to call it flirting. Propriety only knew what the Reverend Christopher Cassilis might be disposed to call it. They sat in the pleasant firelit drawing-room, looking at each other. "'He's got a glorious face,' she thought, like a Greek god or a Christian martyr. I wonder whether he's ever been in love. He thought she's abominably pretty. I suppose beauty is a temptation. "'Well,' she said impatiently, "'you've been very rude indeed, and I've listened to you.' Is your sermon quite done? Have you any more to say? Or shall I give you some tea?" "'I have more to say,' he answered, turning his eyes from her. "'You are beautiful, and young, and rich. You have a kind heart. Oh, yes, I've heard little things in the village already. You are a born general. You organize better than any woman I ever knew though it's only dances and picnics and theatricals and concerts. You have great gifts. You could do great work in the world, and you throw it all away. You give your life to the devil's dance you call pleasure. Why do you do it? Is that your business, too? she asked again. And again he answered, It is my master's business. Had she read his words in a novel, they would have seemed to her priggish, unnatural, and superlatively impertinent. Spoken by those thin, perfectly curved lips, they were, at least, interesting. That wasn't what you began about, she said, twisting the rings on her fingers. The catalogue of her gifts and graces was less a novelty to her than the reproaches of her virtue. No, am I to repeat what I began about? Ah, uh, but I will. I began by saying what I came here to say, that you, as a married woman, have no right to turn men's heads and make them long for what can never be. But you don't know, she said. My husband— I don't wish to know, he interrupted. Your husband is alive, and you are bound to be faithful to him. In thought, word, and deed, what I saw and heard in the little copse last night— "'I do wish you wouldn't,' she said. "'You talk as if—' "'No,' he said. 
I'm willing, even anxious, I think, to believe that you would not, could not. Oh! she cried, jumping up. This is intolerable. How dare you! He had risen, too. I'm not afraid of you, he said. I'm not afraid of your anger, nor your, your other weapons. Think what you are. Think of your great powers, and you're wasting them all in making fools of a pack of young idiots. But what could I do with my gifts, as you call them? Do? Why, you could endow and organize and run any one of a hundred schemes for helping on God's work in this world. For instance, her charming smile enraged him. For instance? Well, for instance, you might start a home for those women who began as you have begun, and who have gone down into hell as you will go, unless you let yourself be warned. She was for a moment literally speechless. Then she remembered how he had said, I'm not afraid of your weapons. She drew a deep breath and spoke gently. I believe you don't mean to be insulting. I believe you mean kindly to me. Please say no more now. I'll think over it all. I'm not angry, only do you really think you understand everything? He might have answered that he did not understand her. She did not mean him to understand. She knew well enough that she was giving him something to puzzle over when she smiled that beautiful, troubled, humble, appealing half-smile. He did not answer at all. He stood a moment twisting his soft hat in his hands. She admired his hands very much. "'Forgive me if I've pained you more than was needed,' he said at last. "'It is only because—' Here her smile caught him and he ended vaguely in a decreasing undertone. She heard the words, King's Jewels, Pearl of Great Price. When he was gone, she said, Well, more than once. Then she ran to the low mirror over the mantelpiece, and looked earnestly at herself. You do look rather nice today, she said, and so he's not afraid of any of your weapons. And I'm not afraid of any of his. It's a fair duel. Only all the provocation came from him. So the choice of weapons is mine. And they shall be my weapons. He has weapons to match them right enough. Only the poor dear doesn't know it. She went away to dress for dinner, humming gaily. My love has brought the roses, all roses, all roses. And arms like lily posies twofold a in. Not next day. She was far too clever for that. But on the day after that, he received a note. Her handwriting was charming. No extravagances. Every letter soberly but perfectly formed. I have been thinking of all you said the other day. You are quite mistaken about some things, but in some you are right. Will you show me how to work? I will do whatever you tell me. Then the Reverend Christopher was glad of the courage that had inspired him to denounce to his parishioners all that seemed to him amiss in them. I am glad, he said to himself, 
that I had the courage to treat her exactly as I have done the others, even if she has beautiful hair and eyes like—like—' He stopped the thought before he found the simile, not because he imagined that there could be danger in it, but because he had been trained to stop thoughts of eyes and hair as neatly as a skilful boxer stops a blow. She had not been so trained, and she admired his eyes and hair quite as much as he might have admired hers, if she had not been married. So now the Reverend Christopher had a helper in his parish work, and he needed help, for his plain speaking had already offended half his parish, and his helper was, as he had had the sense to know she could be, the most accomplished organizer in the country. She ran the parish library, she arranged the school treat, she started evening classes for wood-carving and art needlework, she spent money like water, and time as freely as money. Quietly, persistently, relentlessly, she was making herself necessary to Reverend Christopher. He wrote to her every day. There were so many instructions to give, but he seldom spoke with her. When he called, she was never at home. Sometimes they met in the village and exchanged a few sentences. She was always gravely sweet, intensely earnest. There was a certain smile which he remembered, a beautiful, troubled, appealing smile. He wondered why she smiled no more. Her friends shrugged their shoulders over her new fancy. It is odd her bosom friend said. It can't be the parson, though he is as beautiful as he can be, because she sees next to nothing of him, and yet I can't think that Betty of all people could really—oh, I don't know, said the bosom friend of her bosom friend. Women often do take to that sort of thing, you know, when they get tired of—of—the other sort of thing, don't you know? How horrid you are, said Betty's bosom friend. I believe you're the most dreadful cynic, really." "'Not at all,' said the friend, complacently stroking his moustache. Betty certainly was enjoying herself. She had the great gift of enjoying thoroughly any new game. She enjoyed, first, the newness, and besides, the hidden lining of her new masquerade dress enchanted her. But as her new industries developed, she began to enjoy the things for themselves. It is always delightful to do what we can do well, and the Reverend Christopher had been right when he said she was a born general. "'How easy it all is,' she said, "'and what a fuss those clergy hags make about it. What a wife I should have been for a bishop!' She smiled and sighed. It was pleasant, too, to wake in the morning, not to the recollection of the particular stage which yesterday's flirtation happened to have reached but to a sense of some difficulty overcome, some object achieved, some rough place made smooth for her girls friendly, or her woodcarvers, or her parish magazine, and within it all the secret charm of a purpose transfiguring with its magic this eager, strenuous working life. Her avoidance of the Reverend Christopher struck him at first as modest, discreet, and in the best possible taste but presently it seemed to him that she rather overdid it. There were many times he would have liked to discuss with her, 
but she always evaded to talk with him. Why? He began to ask himself, why? And the question wormed through his brain more and more searchingly. He had seen her at work now. He knew her powers and her graces, the powers and the graces that made her the adored of her friendly girls and her carving boys. He remembered with hot ears and crimson neck above his clerical collar that interview, the things he said to her. How could he have done it? Blind idiot that he had been! And she had taken it all so sweetly, so nobly, so humbly. She had only needed a word to turn from her frivolities of the world to better things. It need not have been the sort of word he had used. And at a word she had turned. That it should have been at his word was not perhaps a very subtle flattery, but the Reverend Christopher swallowed it and never tasted it. He was not trained to distinguish the flavors of flatteries. He never tasted it, but it worked in his blood for all that. And why, why, why would she never speak to him? Could it be that she was afraid that he would speak to her now as he had once spoken? He blushed again. Next time he met her she was coming up to the church with a big basket of flowers for the altar. He took the basket from her and carried it in. "'Let me help you,' he said. "'No,' she said in that sweet, simple, grave way of hers. "'I can do it very well. Indeed, I would rather.' He had to go. The arrangement of the flowers took more than an hour, but when she came out with the empty basket he was waiting in the porch. Her heart gave a little joyful jump. "'I want to speak with you,' said he. "'I'm rather late,' she said as usual. "'Couldn't you write?' No, he said, I can't write this. Sit down a moment in the porch. She loved the masterfulness of his tone. He stood before her. I want you to forgive me for speaking to you as I did once. I'm afraid you're afraid that I shall behave like that again. You needn't be. Score number one, she said to herself aloud, she said. I am not afraid. And she said it sweetly, seriously. "'I was wrong,' he went on eagerly. "'I was terribly wrong. I see it quite plainly now. You do forgive me, don't you?' "'Yes,' she said soberly, and sighed. There was a little silence. Her serious eyes watched the way of the wind dimpling the tall, feathery grass that grew above the graves. "'Are you unhappy?' he asked. You never smile now. I am too busy to smile, I suppose, she said, and smiled the beautiful, humble, appealing smile he had longed to see, though he had not known the longing by its right name. Can't we be friends, he ventured. You, I am afraid you can never trust me again. Yes, I can, she said. It was very bitter at the time, but I thought it was so brave of you, and kind, too, to care what became of me. If you remember, I did want to trust you even on that dreadful day, but you wouldn't let me. I was a brute, he said remorsefully. I do want to tell you one thing. Even if that boy had been holding my hand, I should have thought I had the right to let him, if I liked, just as much as 
though I were a girl or a widow. I don't understand. But tell me, please tell me anything you will tell me. His tone was very humble. My husband was a beast, she said calmly. He betrayed me. He beat me. He had every vile quality a man can have. No, I'll be just to him. He was always good-tempered when he was drunk. But when he was sober, he used to beat me and pinch me. But you could have got a separation, a divorce, he gasped. A separation wouldn't have freed me, really. And the church doesn't believe in divorce, she said demurely. I did, however, and I left him and instructed a solicitor. But the brute went mad before I could get free from him, and now I suppose I'm tied for life to a mad dog. Good God, said the Reverend Christopher. I thought it all out, oh, many, many nights, and I made up my mind that I would go out and enjoy myself. I had never had a good time when I was a girl. And another thing I decided, quite definitely, that if I ever fell in love, I would, I should have the right to. I mean that I wouldn't let a terrible, degraded brute of a lunatic stand between me and the man I loved. And I was quite sure that I was right. And do you still think this? he said in a low voice. Ah, she said, you've changed everything. I don't think the same about anything as I used to. I think those two years with him must have made me nearly as mad as he is. And then I was so young. I am only twenty-three now, you know. And it did seem hard never to have had any fun. I did want so much to be happy. She did not intend to speak like this. But even as she spoke, she saw that this truth-telling far outshone the lamp of lies she had trimmed ready. "'You will be happy,' he said. "'There are better things in the world than—' "'Yes,' she said. "'Oh, yes.' Betty did nothing by halves. She had kept a barrier between her and him till she had excited him to break it down. The barrier once broken, she let it lie where he had thrown it and became— all at once, in the most natural, matter-of-fact, guileless way, his friend. She consulted him about everything. Let him call when he would. She always received him. She surrounded him with the dainty feminine spider-webs from which his life, almost monastic till now, had been quite free. She imported a knitting aunt, so that he should not take fright at long tete-a-tetes. The knitting aunt was deafish and blindish, and did not walk much in the rose garden. Betty knew a good deal about roses, and she taught the Reverend Christopher all she knew. She knew a little of the hearts of men, and she gently pushed him on the road to forgiveness, from that half of the parish whom his first enthusiastic denunciations had offended. She rounded his angles. She turned a wayward aesthetic into a fairly good parish priest. And he talked to her of ideals and honor, and the service of God and the work of the world. And she listened, and her beauty spoke to him so softly that he did not know that he heard it. One day, after long silence, she turned quickly and met his eyes. 
After that she ceased to spin webs, for she saw. Yet she was as blind as he, though she did not know it any more than he did. At last he saw in his turn, and the flash of the illumination nearly blinded him. It was late evening. Betty was nailing up a trailing rose, and he was standing by the ladder holding the nails and the snippets of scarlet cloth. The ladder slipped, and he caught her in his arms. As soon as she had assured him that she was not hurt, he said good-night, and left her. Betty went indoors and cried. "'What a pity!' she said. "'Oh, what a pity! Now he'll be frightened, and it's all over. He'll never come again.' But the next evening he came. And when they walked through the rose-garden, and had come to the sundial, he stopped and spoke. I've been thinking of nothing else since I saw you. When I caught you last night, forgive me if I'm a fool, but when I held you, don't be angry. But it seemed to me that you loved me. Nothing of the sort, said Betty very angrily. Then I must be mad, he said. The way you caught my neck with your arm, and your face was against mine and your hair crushed up against my ear. Oh, Betty, if you don't love me, what shall I do? For I can't live without you. Betty had won. But even if I had loved you, I'm married, she urged softly. Yes. Do you suppose I've forgotten that? But you remember what you said about being really free? and not being bound to that beast. I see that you are right. Right, right. It's the rest of the world that's wrong. Oh, my dear, I can't live without you. Couldn't you love me? Let's go away, right away together. No one will love you as I do. No one knows you as I do. How good and strong and brave and unselfish you are. Oh, try to love me a little. Betty had leaned her elbows on the sundial and her chin on her hands. "'But you used to think,' she began. "'Oh, but I know better now. You've taught me everything. Only I never knew it till last night when I touched you. It was like a spark to a bonfire that I've been piling up ever since I've known you. You taught me what life is, and love. Love can't be wrong. It's only wrong when it's stealing. We shouldn't be robbing anybody.' We should both work together. Happiness makes people work. I see that now. I should have to give up parish work. There's plenty of good work wants doing. Why, I've nearly finished that book of mine. I've worked at it night after night, with the thought of you hidden behind my work. If you were my wife, what work I could do! Oh, Betty, if you only loved me! She lifted her face and looked at him gravely. He flung his arms around her shoulders, and turned her face up to his. She was passive to his kisses. At last she kissed him once, and drew herself from his arms. Come, she said. She led him to the garden seat in the nut avenue. Now, she said, when he had taken his place beside her, I'm going to tell you the whole truth was very angry with you when you came to see me that first day. 
You were quite right. That boy had been holding my hand. What's more, he had been kissing it. It amused me. And if it hurt him, I didn't care. Then you came, and you said things. And then you said you weren't afraid of me or my weapons. It was a challenge, and I determined to make you love me. It was all planned. The helping in your work, and keeping out of your way at first, was to make you wish to see me. And you see, I succeeded. You did love me. I do, he said. He caught her hand and held it fiercely. I deserved it all. I was a brute to you. I meant you to love me, and you did love me. I lied to you in almost everything at first. About that man? Was that a lie? he asked fiercely. No, she laughed drearily. That was truth enough. You see, it was more effective than any lie I could have invented. No lie could have added a single horror to that story. So I have won, as I swore I would. Is that all, he said, all the truth? It's all there's any need for, she said. I want it all. I want to know where I am, whether I really was mad last night. Betty, in spite of all your truth, I can't believe one thing. I can't believe that you don't love me. Man's vanity, she began with a flippant laugh. Don't, he said harshly. How dare you play with me, man's vanity. But it's your honor. I know you love me. If you didn't, you would be. How do you know I am not? Silence, he said. If you can't speak the truth, hold your tongue and let me speak it. I love you, and you love me, and we're going to be happy. I will speak the truth, said Betty, giving him her hand. You love me, and I love you, and we are going to be miserable. Yes, I will speak. Dear, I can't do it, not even for you. I used to think I thought I could. I was bitter. I think I wanted to be revenged on life and God and everything. I thought I didn't believe in God, but I wanted to spite him all the same. But when you came, after that day in the porch, when you came and talked to me about all the good and beautiful things, why, then I knew that I really did believe in them. And I began to love you because you had believed them all the time, and because—and I didn't try to make you love me, after that day in the porch, at least not very much. Oh, I do want to speak the truth. I used to try so not to try. I—I did want you to love me, though. I didn't want you to love anyone else. I wanted you to love me just enough to make you happy and not enough to make you miserable. And so long as you didn't know you loved me, it was all right. And when you caught me last night, I knew that you would know, and it would all be over. You made up your mind to teach me that there were better things in the world than love, truth and honor and, and things like that. And you've taught it me. It was a duel, and you've won. And you meant to teach me that love is stronger than anything in the world, and you have won too. Yes, she said, we've both won. 
That's the worst of it. Or the best. What is to become of us? he said. Oh, my dear, what are we going to do? Do you forgive me? If you are right, I must be wrong, but I can't see anything now except that I want you so. I'm glad you loved me enough to be silly, she said, but, oh, my dear, how glad I am that I love you too much to let you. But what are we to do? Do? Nothing. Don't you see we've taught each other everything we know? We've given each other everything we can give. Isn't it good to love like this, even if this has to be all? It's all very difficult, he said, but everything shall be as you choose. Only somehow I think it's worse for me than for you. I loved you before, and now I adore you. I seem to have made a saint of you, but you've made me a man. One wishes with all one's heart that that lunatic would die. The situation is, one would say, impossible. Yet the lovers do not find it so. They work together, and the parish scandal has almost ceased to patter about their names. There is a subtle pleasure for both in the ceremonious courtesy with which, ever since that day, they treat each other. It contrasts so splendidly with the living flame upon each heart altar. So far the mutual passion has improved the character of each. All the same, one wishes that the lunatic would die, for she is not so much of a saint as he thinks her, and he is much more of a man than she knows. End of chapter 14 Recording by Capricia Page